Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Uh, As always, a really interesting, insightful, and I think fascinating show is lined up for you today. Um, I always promise that, and I think we really do deliver. Um, We welcome you here and invite your um, subscribing to the podcast, tell your friends, Uh, We won't let you down. Um, Today, we delve back into the world of film, um, and we have probably one of the most unique filmmakers that I've talked to on the show uh, joining us today. His name is um, L.A. Alfonso, or Lester um, is his formal name, but uh, L.A. is uh, a filmmaker Actually, he is described as a genre-defying multimedia maverick, and his films certainly reflect that. Um, besides film, he does a lot of other things. He does um, ukulele-inspired podcasts. He does 35-millimeter street photography, large-scale video projection. I think he's a DJ. So he's, he, his art expands beyond just the film genre. But today we're probably going to talk mostly about the film genre part of him because he has so much to offer in just that area alone. Um, The film we're going to be focusing on is his newest film. It's called Circus Boy, and it's a quietly impactful work that looks at the relationship between a gay circus trainer and his young protege, who he is also incorporated into his life as an adoptive son. And it is a quiet portrait. Um, The film captures their artistry as circus performers. And by circus performers, they are kind of of the Cirque du Soleil genre of circus, not the old uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bailey type. Um, But the film shows the inspiration that they impart um, from their art but also the impact that each of them has on their mothers, who um, each of the mothers, the mother of the um, circus trainer and the birth mother of the the boy um, are featured in the film, and the impact that these these gentlemen have on their own mothers is is a cornerstone of, of the impact of that film. So we'll be talking about that. He has done other films, including uh, the film 12, Trying to Be Some Kind of Hero, The Best Waitress in the World, and a film called Birthmark. And each of them is really great in its own, in its own way, um, fascinating. And um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about all of that. Um, and I can't wait. First, though, uh, I do want to welcome to the show Brody Levesque. Um, Brody, if you didn't know, is also the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, online and in print in the Los Angeles area. Um, And we're going to talk about a few news stories before we get started. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Uh, Good day, good morning, good afternoon. All of our listeners, thank you for subscribing to 
the podcast, listening to the show. We appreciate it very much. Um, I want to throw a little pitch out there. This last Tuesday uh, was Giving Tuesday, uh, and I'm going to promote the Drew Project uh, as the one that uh, we're endorsing. Um, the Drew Project uh, was formed uh, by two friends of the show, uh, Sarah Grossman and Brandon J. Wolf, uh, after the death of their friend, um, in the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting, and it uh, hands out scholarships and awards uh, for LGBT uh, students. They do yeoman work, and so uh, if you go to the Drew Project, uh, DrewProject.org, take a look and then uh, give them a hand, if you will. Um, in the news, and that's 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 actually pretty pertinent, given that we also had a school shooting this week, tragically again. Again, yeah, four dead. Yeah, um, yeah. it's uh, yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health uh, Clinic, uh, which was heard yesterday uh, by the United States Supreme Court in oral arguments. The state of Mississippi uh, had passed a law that essentially would ban outright all abortion after 15 weeks. Period. End of discussion. Uh, with no exceptions. Uh, this, of course, runs counter to Roe v. Wade. It runs counter to other rulings from the high court uh, in terms of, you know, pregnancy viability and length of time allotted uh, for abortions to take place. And, of course, what it really does is it just uh, the law shuts the doors uh, on the rights of uh, women and their reproductive choices. And it also shuts the door on queer and non-binary and transgender folk uh, for the same reasons, and it eliminates their ability uh, to get adequate health care and access to abortion if need be. Uh, This is more than just an issue for women. It's an issue across the board. Today in the Los Angeles Blade, uh, I published an op-ed from Tony Hong, Tony is the executive director of Equality California, which is the nation's largest statewide LGBTQ civil rights organization. Um, One of the things that uh, Tony and some other advocates uh, have pointed out, and it was pointed out by Shannon Minter yesterday uh, in coverage of the case uh, that I wrote, that in addition to reproductive choices and, you know, taking away women's rights and a few other things, particular case could start the court and others down the road of uh, Supreme Court precedents in cases that would literally probably undo Lawrence v. Texas and undo Obergefell v. Hodges. Um, And essentially what you would end up with is a patchwork of states that would criminalize uh, same-sex relations and you would uh, also end up with states that are not allowing abortion. You are also going to end up with states that are absolutely not going to allow same-sex marriage. So what you end up with is if Roe does get overturned or the precedence is set, then it will, in fact, be a gateway to rights for the rest of the uh, queer community uh, in terms of a patchwork again uh, that's going to create all sorts of problems. It'll create headaches even at the federal level 
particularly since uh, the U.S. military, for example, uh, you could have um, same-sex uh, married couples in the armed forces, and if they were living in a state that basically wasn't going to pay any attention in, uh, to uh, the court rulings and was one of those states that says, you know, no more same-sex marriage, now suddenly, you know, that couple in that military post in that state, they have a problem. Uh, the courts leaning into an area that's going to cause all sorts of issues and this is really what the, the real takeaway from this is. This isn't just strictly about women's choice and women's reproductive rights. This is about what the impact could be on the LGBTQ community across the board. If the Supreme Court does come back and rules for the state of Mississippi, which will basically undo abortion rights in the state of Mississippi, it will now become precedence for 26 other states who have already indicated that they're waiting to see what happens with this one before they enact their outright bans on abortion. Those same states are also states that would be very quick to reenact laws that they already have on the books about criminalizing same-sex intimate relations and basically undoing same-sex marriage. And this is truly one of those moments where you know, the call is out there to folks to let them know that this is a real deal. Yes, if you're a gay couple and you're married, you could end up not being married legally in several states if these things start happening. It won't happen right away, obviously, because it's going to have to work its way through the court system. But the impetus is going to be there for it. And it's another, you know, step on the road to, you know, basically a balkanization you know, of the United States over cultural issues. Again, the people that are driving these are the Christian right, and they are the so-called family values groups. They are the so-called right-to-lifers. Um, and at the end of the day, there's no sense of tolerance with them at all whatsoever. There's a lot of people that defend that sort of, you know, well, freedom of expression, religious freedom, all this other stuff. You know, they can have religious freedom. The problem is, is they take their religious freedom, they weaponize it, and they turn it on the gay community, they turn it on the trans community, they turn it on the women, they turn it on Muslims. So at the end of the day, this is what it ends up with. Is it likely this could happen? The answer is based on what we saw being presented yesterday in the form of the questions being asked by the, at least the conservative justices on the high court, yes. So is it possible that... Obergefell can go away? Yes, absolutely. Is it possible that some idiot state would say, well, you know, if you have gay sex, it's a felony? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of these situations where if an Equality Act is not passed to protect and enshrine and codify the rights of the LGBTQI community equally under the law, then these states, mm -hmm. driven by these Christian nutters and these fascists, are going to go after them. It's really that simple. Now, yeah. ancillary to that, Rob, before you ask your question, there's one more thing I want people to pay attention to, okay? At the Los Angeles Blade yesterday, I put up an article. The American Library Association, since June 1st of this year, has recorded 155-plus incidences, okay, of banning of texts written by LGBTQ authors or black authors talking about black experiences, 
Some of them have even gone so far as to ask for criminal charges in the state of Florida. And yesterday we had an Iowa lawmaker said that he was okay, you know, calling teachers into court and charging them with criminal offenses for LGBTQ books in their classroom. This is absolutely aligned directly with what we saw with what the high court was doing yesterday in the abortion thing. They're both related. There is an absolute movement out there. It is very powerful. And if the Republicans get back into office, and sadly, if the Republicans take back the White House, this is going to be very problematic. People need to understand this isn't someone out there yelling, the sky is falling, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is no Grimm's fairy tale. This is reality. These people are shooting for our rights. Okay, they want them taken away. They're going after the books now. They're going after reproductive rights. There is a clear and present danger to the LGBTQI community. Okay, and the truth of the matter is the argument and the baseline argument that they're using is, well, they have religious freedom. At the end of the day, all right, they don't care about their fellow human beings. They only think about what they want and what they get and their religious freedoms and screw the rest of us. And therein lies the core of the problem, and therein is going to lie what we're probably going to end up seeing if these things start to go off the rail. A friend of the show, Brent Tedahill, who's an analyst and a good friend, is cautioning now, and rightly so. We could see similar movements to the Black Lives Movement, Matters Movement. We could see similar protestations taking place, and we could see bloodshed in the streets because these idiots want to take away women's reproductive rights and they want to take away our rights. This isn't science fiction. This isn't fantasy. This is reality, and this is where it's headed. And if this court rules the way it may look like it can rule, the next two to five years are going to be exceedingly unpleasant, okay, for progressives and exceedingly unpleasant for the LGBTQI community. Okay, there's a lot there, um, and I, I, I'm going to table my questions because we would end up going on for a long period of time on it. Um, but yeah, that's um, deeply troubling, and we'll watch that case and see see what happens. Um, I, I think I think the first hurdle to the affront to women itself is going to be um, a shot heard around the, the country when women are, are highly restricted on their own choices of their own bodies. Um, and yeah. then the rest of that could unravel. Um, I would note that the, the, um, the one uh, person in front of the court who is arguing for um, the case for Mississippi ha- said that uh, none of those other things would happen. Um, although they were not necessarily believed that that they were telling the truth about that, but you know, we will we will see how this plays out. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, um, yeah, I saw the same thing. You know, I, I I heard the same arguments, but the legal experts and the constitutional lawyers, including Shannon Minter from the National Center. The right. lesbian rights and some of the other lawyers that I know who argue in front of the high court are saying no, that that's that's a lie, 
and it, it was said specifically, okay, to throw the justices off and to throw the scent off of the reality that they're using religious freedom as the sledgehammer and women's reproductive rights as the first up. And by getting rid of Roe v. Wade, because of the very construct of Roe v. Wade and the way that it has been held up in court opinions and held up without codification into law, okay, and no, I'm going to re-say that, without codification into law, there is no law, federal, state, or local, that enshrines a woman's right. It has all been predicated on that high court ruling. The same with Logan Buffell and the same with Lawrence v. Texas. So the Mississippi argument that, oh, it won't affect these other rights is a blatant lie. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on from there um, and switch tone and focus and everything else. Um, uh, We're going to look at this um, intimate, sweet, wonderful, creative new film called Circus Boy. And uh, with that, I want to welcome the director and producer, L.A. Alfonso, to the show. L.A., welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Uh, my pleasure. So, um, Circus Boy is uh, such a quiet film, and I, one thing I noticed that differentiates it from a lot of your previous work is a lot of your previous work was very specific and intimate to you. You brought a lot of your own story in um, to previous films. This one, you were more of an outside observer. Um, how did the, the concept and the production of Circus Boy come about? Yeah, that's a really, really good question because I've always called myself um, kind of like an autobiographical filmmaker, kind of, you know, in line with, say, you know, Ross McElwee or Alan Berliner, um, you know, people who make films about themselves just and edit and shoot everything themselves. Um, with Circus Boy, I had um, a friend of mine, uh, Thomas, who's the star of the film. Uh, he came up. To, he he came to me about uh, well around 2016, I believe, and when he had just sort of met Ethan, um, and there was this idea that um, uh, he was going to adopt him. So I was really interested in sort of like capturing that from the very beginning, kind of like in the, the you know, I don't know if you've seen the film seven up mm-hmm. where it's, uh, oh, no. it takes, yeah. uh, every, yeah, it's like every seven years they visit the same, uh, person, you know, when they started when they were seven years old and then 14, et cetera. So I thought I would do something like that or at least capture right away. Um, and so that in 2016, I started shooting um, some interviews uh, and then also some circus stuff with Thomas and Ethan. And then um, in 2019, uh, Thomas said, well, you know, my mom's coming to meet my son for the first time. And she's coming all the way from North Carolina. Uh, would you mind shooting that too? And previous to that, I was just shooting with my my 
recorder my, my, by myself. I didn't have a crew or anything like that. I was just shooting just archival stuff. And I imagined myself again, kind of like in the corner with my little video camera, kind of shooting this beautiful moment where the mom would meet the grandson for the first time. And I just thought, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I want to actually bring in a crew and, and actually kind of film this properly and document this day in the life. You know, um, she was right, going to arrive right. at something like seven, seven o'clock in the morning and then they were going to perform for her that night. And I thought, well, this, this is sort of a, a natural arc to the story that if I just sort of started in the morning and then ended at night um, and just sort of show a slice of life. And in my mind, I was thinking seven years later, I would then show another slice of life of Ethan's life. Um, by that time, he would be maybe graduating from circus school. Um, et cetera. So that was just my grand dream. And so it started out as I was doing a podcast at the time, and it was called Soundproof. And so it started out uh, as a podcast in that, like, I shot it all on, on film and video, and uh, I took the audio and kind of made a short story out of it, uh, a half-hour short story. And so that ended up developing the film a little bit more. So we got people interested and, um, uh, and then the film got accepted to uh, like a, a local screening here. That's like a preview uh, for a local film festival. And funny enough, like 400 people showed up and, <laughs> and they <laughs> loved it. And they were like, what can I, can we see more of this? When can we see this again? And like, I'm just completely shocked because I, this is just sort of like my, my, I'm asking my friend to make the music for it. You know, this is, you know, I mean, this is all kind of a family uh, labor of love. Um, and it's also kind of, for me, uh, after I made 12 and I was in an interview at one point and they asked me, what are you going to do next? <clears throat> and I asked, I said, I was really interested in making a film about kindness because I had, just at that time read something about kindness and how when you do an act of kindness for someone, your actual serotonin levels go in your, in your brain goes up. So this happiness, happy, happy drug, kind of the happy uh, hormones. And then um, the person who's actually receiving the kindness, their serotonin levels go up too. And, and then also the witness, of that act of kindness, their serotonin also grow up. So I thought if I was just going to make a film that was quiet and kind and um, that maybe kind of raises the audience's serotonin level and then right. makes, makes that, you know, makes that happy. Because I was just, you know, I feel like there's so much out there uh, that is the opposite of quiet, the opposite of not nonviolence. Um, that there is space to tip the scale. In fact, there's a lot of space to, to tip that scale. And so I just wanted to make something completely different. And so I I was sort of part of the podcast, but when it came time to make the film, I removed myself completely from it. And because it was just it was just their story this time. And I also wanted yeah. to break out. I wanted to break out of what I'd already been doing because I was, uh, 
I was actually like I wanted to transition my name from Lester Alfonso to L.A. Alfonso, and in a way, uh, my next film is actually about name changing and stuff like that. Um, that's what I'm developing right now, um, which is going to be oh, that's awesome. kind of autobiographical. Yeah, so that's going to be another going back to an, an autobiographical kind of take. But what I really wanted to do was like it sort of in a way proved to myself and others that I could make a film that's not about me, <laughs> that I could uh, also make a traditional film. And But actually, this is not even a traditional documentary because I, there's not a single talking head kind of interview in it. And I wanted all of the audio to kind of seem like just thoughts in people's in the characters' heads as you see them, right. and then just kind of mainly conversations that you you sort of witness like a fly on the wall as an audience member. So yeah, is that, and I, that, answer, that was is that a long answer. That, oh, to, no, no, totally, totally. Um, in fact, that was one of my things was of watching it. You know, is like okay, is this is this a is this li- you know their life or is this somehow you know a a, for lack of a better term, scripted movie because it does the 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 scenes just kind of fold in so naturally like like a story told movie, um, so it's super yeah. super effective in that way. Um, and you may have already answered this question in what you just said, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. Because in in a lot of the things that you've talked about about your film, um, you've said that um, a film is quote chasing after that one idea. And um, I'm hearing from what you just said, kindness may be the, the one idea of Circus Boy. Is, is that the one idea of Circus Boy? The one idea of Circus Boy, wow. Well, the one idea is this just absolute kind of givingness that Tom, Thomas had. Um, I mean, there's just uh, there's just more stories around that at the moment. Like uh, that, I, I that's just the story keeps going because it's a real story. It's not scripted, and what I basically wanted to do was just be a fly on the wall. But the, the the thing that I did do was I kept bringing people together and taking people apart. So it's like at one point I had Ethan kind of do his training while. Tom and his mom had a moment and then bringing so I that was the one thing I kind of had my hand in that day but that's what happens with relationships and that's what happens with us all the time we get you know we come back together and then we get separated again and kind of the the central idea of the film I think it's like when families kind of like grow apart and then come back together again there's just sort of like um, this this movement that's like breathing, you know, it goes like forward, you know, inwards and outwards, and um, and really kindness was what I really wanted to uh, focus on. Um, you know, Vin Vendors always said that making a film was like following a comet streak. You know, a comet streak that fly. You know, it's so quick. It's this idea, this glimmer of an idea, and then you'll spend maybe two, three years following this comet. And by that time, you kind of forgot what the original comet was because <laughs> there's just so many different things that you have to deal with to actually get, you know, so if you, you would be a lucky, lucky filmmaker if you actually 
we're able to capture that lightning in a bottle, you know, that, that comet. Um, right. Uh, the, the original inspiration. So many times you just get lost uh, in the bureaucracy and the real lifeness of things, you know? Well, you know, I think you, that, what you just said is sort of a point I got from another film of yours, The Best Waitress in the World. Um, in fact, I thought that was probably the most pinnacle, fascinating thing about that film where you you were impressed by this waitress and had this huge idyllic vision of her um, and her service and kind of the extra things she brought, you know, in doing her job and, and serving you as a, a customer. And then you wanted to make a film of her because it, it, the first was watching that part of the film is like, well, how, how did he make this film? Cause she's, you know, you know, you've got these shots that are right up in there and, if you know she was this kind of fantasy thing, but you, it, the film evolves to that where you 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 get her agreement, you're going to do the film, and you get to know her. But then all of a sudden, as you're doing that, the narrative of the film is you've shattered that original illusion of, of this you know anonymous perfect waitress that 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 was was nothing but the perfect waitress had wasn't a human being, wasn't a friend of yours, wasn't all these things. And I just, mm-hmm. I just absolutely, that, that fascination of that film just absolutely blew me away. Um, what, what was, nice. what, what, uh, give us a little, little more background on that one. And how did that all come about? Oh, wow. Well, that's, uh, that was a very long time ago. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was, True to that, that I was enamored with this waitress, and then I wanted to make a film about her. But in the end, I wanted to make a film about the process of making a film about a waitress, because the process itself, to me, was fascinating when I started to think, oh, wow, my illusion, my dream started to, you know, shatter. She's not, you know, she. I got to know her as a person, you know, we ended up becoming friends. <clears throat> and, and in the end, that was actually, I, I had mourned the loss of this image I had, which was this, like, uh, just an illusion. And then it was replaced, really, by, by a friendship, by the reality of it. Um, so that's the process that I think that I wanted to make a comment on. And that's the kind of thing that maybe it's not a lot of, not a lot of films kind of deal with that idea, but, but it's a real thing, especially especially now, you know, when there's a lot of people uh, um, shooting films and, and using other people's stories to make their films. And uh, uh, there's this kind of an um, ethical question. There's a, you know, how do you, how do you do that? And there's, that, that's what happens, the, just the constant question I have about that, you know. And that's why I kind of like the idea of making films about myself because I don't have to get the rights for it. <laughs> and I uh, <laughs> just, I know I, I don't, you know, uh, I won't complain later because I'll, I'll have final cut on whatever, <laughs> whatever uh, I put out there. So that's, what, what, that's part well, of it. Speaking of which, what, what did Ethan and Thomas think about the final cut of Circus Boy? You know, you know, Ethan was unsure about one part, and he, I, I, I said, you know, 
<laughs> it, because it, I guess he comes off, he thinks he comes off as not nice to his adoptive dad when he says, oh, you're too old to go to Cirque du Soleil. And so there's about <laughs> one point where he, he mentions that and he's like, and so <laughs> I know. So he didn't want that in because it sounds like he was being mean to his dad. Um, but I just thought that was one of my favorite parts because that's typical of a father-son moment where totally. the son would, totally. you know, right? Because they're not yeah. even like biological, but they're already doing that kind of like he's challenging the, <laughs> you know, the the elder and then saying like just straight up, you know, you're too old to do Cirque du Soleil. I'm going to do it, you know. So I yeah, love that good. part. And so he didn't – sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just saying, I um... – I actually have two sons. They're um, they're both now 19. Um, they were both oh, adopted yeah. as babies through foster care, and so oh. I mean, and you can tell Ethan this for me is like that was okay. that was such a touch of reality um, <laughs> that that moment because it's like and and it's really weird. But the one the one people one set of people that you take that from without question or without um uh taking insult is your own kids like that that's right. just yeah so that was that that almost was an underscore of the intimacy of the father-son relationship between them um so mm-hmm. yeah it yeah well, I'm, I, I'm glad you yeah. said that i'm glad you caught that that's that's all exactly what i meant it to be <laughs> that's so that's amazing yeah so since you started out filming this in, you know, um, several years ago and had kind of one vision for it and then it has evolved, what, what did you personally learn from Thomas and Ethan and Michael and the mothers? And what, what, what aha moment walk, did you walk away with? You know, I, uh, you know, uh, Thomas's view of Ethan, how he could spin anything into gold and he could do as long as he believes himself. I mean, I think that's what I take away from it for myself. Like when he's talking about Ethan, it's almost like I want him to be my dad. If I, if I, was, if I was adopted, like, wow, I, I would be the luckiest kid if I had him adopt me because he's so uh, giving and encouraging. And it's the kind of words that maybe I really desperately need to hear for myself. Like maybe I haven't grown up. Maybe none of us have grown up, grown up really. (laughs) Um, But there's just certain words that you just want to kind of hear and get encouraged. And, and I think when that, that part, when he's talking about Ethan and, and he's talking about how he could see, I think he really believes in him and he could turn anything into gold. um, That's what I take away from it. No, that, uh, and he, that, you know, and that's... go ahead. What do you, what do you think? What did you take away from it? Well, actually, I mean, I, I love to say that everything that you've said so far. I love it. it. It's, it's interesting from my perspective and, and I'm, I have to be really upfront with you. Uh, you know, every one of your films that I have watched, I take away a very personal reaction to them. I mean, so I'm, I, I can't even think that everybody watching them is going to react the same way I did because they they touch on something. 
Um, uh, your film mm-hmm. 12 particularly did that for me, and I'll, I'll mention that in a few minutes. But um, the, the, one of the things with, with Circus Boy that impacted me was where he's talking about the, um, the church in, in Florence, I think it was, with the, the dome that was, should not be standing. The weight of it should have it cave in. Right. But the right. designer of it, it, it works perfectly and it is standing, you know, forever. And, but the secret of it has, has gone away. And I kind of took right. that as analogy of the non-traditional family that was presented in Circus Boy. Because even, right. even as I shared, you know, I'm a gay dad with, with my own adoptive sons that, from birth. But, you know, we went through this huge process of foster care and adoption and, and all of that where um, oh, wow. Thomas and Ethan's arrangement is a lot more um, emotional and spiritual rather than legal. Um, at at right. least that's the way it's depicted in the film. And that, you know, it's like Ethan has a birth father who is still somewhat in the picture. You know, he has a birth mom, you know, it's, you know it, it, and not just a birth mom like somebody distant, but somebody who's active in his life and then to adoptive mm-hmm. gay dads. And it's so, yeah. it's like, from a strictly traditionalist look of it, it's like, well, what's this relationship? And I still, mm-hmm. I see it as a family that is, that is sort of symbolic of that, that dome that is intact. You don't have to explain the, the physics of how it all works. It just is, and it's perfect, and it works. So that was kind of my takeaway from it. Wow. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> That's beautiful. That is amazing. I didn't, I, I, you know, that wasn't like completely intentional, uh, but I love your read on it. That is uh, well, that's beautiful. It, well, it's, it's, and again, this is something from your films that the thing that I love about your art is, first of all, your, your images throughout everything you do are, you know, it's like you're obviously to the point of, of the description of you of being multimedia. Is like it's not just watching traditional film. It's like you're going to get images and impressions that are above the, the literal film itself. But um, uh, the film 12, and just for people who haven't watched it yet, go watch it because it's, yeah. I, I, honestly it, was, it woke up stuff in me that I didn't know was there which was you, you were transplanted from the Philippines to Canada at 12 years old. And you decided yeah. to make a film that was talking to other 12-year-olds 12, uh, 12 or other people who at 12 shifted their environment dramatically and the impact it had on them. Is, is that a fair description? Yeah, and there's 12 of them. So there's 12, 12. And 12 of them. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, and yeah, and then there's know, it's, twelve advice, <laughs> thirteen actually. Yeah, it's and it is. Um, I think it, it the film itself calls in examination for the viewer to look at at your childhood on things that have that that while you're living it, people act like this is just normal life, and you know, it's just it's this process that you should just. Um, uh, acquaint yourself or accustom yourself to. But when it happens, 
and now as an adult going back to see what that effect was. And for me, it wasn't 12 years old, it was 13 when I had a similar life shift like that. I totally went into an anxious, depressive place in my puberty. Part of it was also dealing with my sexuality, which was coming up at the same time. But I have not, before I watched your film, I never stopped to go back and look at that. And your film took me back to that. Um, wow. That, that film obviously you've gotten critical coin for. What, what have other people taken from that? Oh, yeah, 12. Uh, it, it continues to have a kind of slow burn that I, 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 I still get the occasional letter, um, the occasional email. Um, a lot of people have been touched by that. I still meet people. I feel like there's always some person in the room uh, every, everywhere I go that moved uh, or something happened at age 12 to them that, that's in that way that was a big shift. Um, people do take this sort of, even though um, part of the angle of it, kind of an immigration story, and actually it's been recently written about in a journal called Children's Society, and they talk about its strength uh, to sort of uh, prioritize or centralize the, the, the stories about immigration as children, as kind of a way to talk about uh, race and, and in, in a way that's non-triggering because there's uh, children's stories are, are universal. Um, it's almost right. like we can't even put race to it. You know, it's almost like um, it's just completely universal and it touches everyone. We've all, we've all been 12. Um, so, uh, in fact, that's actually when I met Ethan <laughs> when he was 12. So, in a way, it's kind of a an interesting connection there. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's interesting. So now he's like, he's 17 now. So it's like, it's been five years. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, so it, he's, he's getting ready to, to uh, go to circus school. <laughs> wow. In well, he's, he's so talented. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just the capturing of their, their performance there. Um, um, is is super intriguing and um, and mind blowing. I mean how how talented both both he and Thomas are. Um, do you plan uh, to to do a part two of, of following him to the next step? I I would love to if that was you know in the offing like if that was going to happen uh, I, I would love to to do that um, these days there's a lot of you know because technology is such that we just self-document a lot now um, I think it, like, it doesn't even I don't even have to follow him <laughs> you know and with a camera necessarily because I think it's just sort of like but I, I may do that I may kind of like make a point to like um, you know shoot something with an actual crew maybe um, once a year or something, and see some see how that how that develops. Yeah, yeah. That, curious. I mean, he it, I, honestly, and part of it is watching watching Circus Boy, and you know, it's like, and this is the hallmark of a good film is you know, it's like when you watch a film where you fall in love with the characters, 
you you don't want your relationship with the characters to end right there at the end of the film. You want to you know continue on with them, and certainly oh, yeah. created with them. I mean, they're real real people. They're not just characters that are owned by an audience. But um, um, that yeah, that so. certainly I was, so. I hope. was the effect. Yeah, I hope that people are curious and want to know more. Um, like you, like there's you know the the story like I said continues and. It, the the twists and turns that have happened, I mean, you know, that's definitely worthy of a sequel on its own. I don't know if I can really necessarily talk about the details about what's happening right now, but uh, it's certainly worthy of another film. Uh, and then, you know, what life keeps happening, so we can't stop it. Yeah, no, it, de- it definitely does. And the, un- the unknown comes in. Um, I want to go back. After you made 12, which was such a personal film, and and really, you know, the film itself comes off as your own personal questioning and, and trying to figure things out for yourself. What did you walk away with? Did you come away with answers for yourself and, and putting to bed things that before had been unresolved? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I was just talking about that recently because I was uh, talking about how how – I ended up asking the National Film Board of Canada to come and film me in my therapy during my therapy uh, session. Um, And I was just really out there wanting to be completely, you know, vulnerable and naked, just wanted to see what was really going on with me. And I was using the camera like a kind of tool to dig in, like a a kind of a microscope for myself. So... um, I definitely, you know, learned a lot about myself and a lot about what happened around that time in terms of other people and being able to use that way of making a film to find out more about myself. So when it, when it was, when I was awarded, um, I mean, I, I, I ended up having a breakup and it was a really, really hard breakup. And uh, this is after I'd made 12. And right. I, I uh, ended up uh, having this sort of moment of crisis that made me realize that I was still thinking that my birthmark, because I have a birthmark, uh, was bad luck. And the bad luck of this birthmark was making me, had, you know, caused the breakup, caused my, you know, my everything else, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized that, you know, at work with me, every time I would, like, you know, even as, as a filmmaker, so, you know, sometimes you would cancel a shoot because it would rain. I literally would always think it's my birthmark that made it rain. So I, because I had done 12 so successfully, I thought, well, maybe I could do the similar thing and ask people about their birthmarks and see what I would find out about my birthmark. Um, And if people had stories about their birthmarks. So I ended up writing a grant and they gave me $80,000. And then another, another uh, arts um, organization gave me $30,000. And so I was just encouraged to, to in a way to do this research creation where I didn't even really know what the ending of the movie was going to be. It was just a complete exploration of 
the idea was that I was just, I basically proposed, I was just going to go out there and pe- ask people about birthmarks because there's nothing culturally about birthmarks out there that I, right. that I know of yet that actually captures, you know, cultural beliefs. Um, it's something that we have in our daily lives sometimes, you know, like we would maybe talk about it, like there's a baby born and, you know, that would be, that would be mentioned. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so like culturally it hasn't been around very much. So, so anyway, um, that ended up becoming um, kind of a key in to basically the idea that we kind of make up these stories about ourselves. Like I, I, in a way, the idea that this bad luck was so real to me before I made the film and after making the film and after talking to all these people, now I don't even have that bad luck thing anymore because I think, wow, that was just a complete uh, thing that I had in the back of my mind. The reason I, that was still at work because I didn't talk about it. It was, it was in the back of my mind. I was, I was embarrassed to talk. I was literally, I couldn't talk about it because I'd be laughed at or something. And because right. part of the, part of the reason was the reason why my birthmark uh, was bad luck, according to the Filipino superstition was the location, because if you had a birthmark on your lip, you would be talkative, a birthmark on your head, you'd be, you'd be smart but my birthmark is on my butt and that's supposed to be bad luck. And so the whole idea was supposed to be embarrassing. I couldn't even like, I didn't have, I had like body issues. I didn't want to undress in front of anybody for, for a very long time. Um, And literally this, this film, something I learned from 12 that I could make a film about myself and then actually learn about myself uh, a lot more when I'm right. Right. uh, I ended up like, yeah, so yeah, so that was part of what I learned from twelve. It's actually the making of films, and Birthmark now became my first feature-length uh, autobiographical right. film. Which, which, yeah. by the way, is another tribute to you being the most patient filmmaker in the world. Because Birthmark, I think, took you eight years um, to make, right? Yeah, yeah, long time. <laughs> but also <laughs> in, in, along the same vein of self-search, and this was. This film, to me, was, like, huge that you made, which is trying to be some kind of hero and the search oh, yeah. for the identity of your um, birth grand- or your, your, your maternal grandfather. Um, yeah. Oh, my God, what, a, what an incredible story, and it just unraveled and rolled out so Oh, wow, perfectly. thank you so much. And, uh, yeah. I mean, how did that, and the story was um, you were, your mother's birth father was, uh, who, who he was, his identity was kind of secret and a mystery. And you went to the Philippines to talk to your grandmother to get answers. And spoiler alert, it turns out <laughs> that she always felt that he just abandoned her, but it turns out in your investigation that he actually had come looking for her and had a lot more feelings, and she could, had she known that, she may have made a different choice in her life, which meant you might not even have existed if she had, had gone off <laughs> yeah. to pursue him. Um, 
you know, and I, and my telling of that just did not give it justice at all. But um, <laughs> it, it it rolls out so beautifully. What what did oh, you walk you. away from that film with? Mm, wow. Well, um, you know, just even going back to the Philippines after so long was a mind blowing experience, and having to. You know, I don't even know where I would get the gumption to do something like that now. I feel like I was just full of energy uh, at that time um, that I would want to, like, uncover one of the biggest mysteries, family mysteries, you know. I mean, that's that's still a mystery for me. Um, and so I just wanted to get to the bottom of it. Um, I, I learned, you know, I learned filmmaking again, you know, through that. And I learned the, uh, the idea of just documenting now is just so important because it's so fleeting and that, that you can now watch that film and talk to me about it is exactly why I wanted to make a film like that and put it out there. Um, and, and then put out there something that's not usually out there. Um, I, I wanted to kind of add to, you know, the world something that's not usually out there um, and something that's honest because I can only be an expert about myself, really, you know, and if, I, uh, if I'm honest about that, maybe I can touch people um, or at least I would what? know and learn more about myself. Yeah, and it, it, I, I think it, the thing that was so surprising in that film as it unfolded was it, it was coming off very, very, you know, a little bit, not matter-of-factly, but, you know, it's like you were pursuing something that, you know, it was a lot of people's story. You know, there was a lot of, you know, um, of those type of situations happening from World War II and soldiers being over mm-hmm. uh, in the Philippines, et cetera. But then it turned into this really bittersweet love story, and that was it, that element of it coming up was just like very moving, and and you know, so it was just so so wonderfully done and um, just super super effective. Um, we only have a few more minutes left, but I want to go back to Circus Boy. How can people yep. check that out? How can they watch it? Um, what what all is available? Uh, around it yeah so it's it starts streaming december 14th on itunes uh apple store uh apple tv sorry uh, itunes store and vimeo on demand um so yeah first one features is distributing it um i uh, yeah so hopefully you could check it out on all those platforms um and Perfect. And Ellie, how do people find out more about you? Uh, you know, what is your website and um, other places they can I check out all of your work? Oh, thank you. I have, you know, you know, you just look up my name, Lester Alfonso. I mean, there's 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 other Lester Alfonsos out there actually, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to call myself LA, which is basically the first, uh, the initial of my first name and my middle name. Uh, but yeah, LesterAlfonso.com is there and also there's a bunch of YouTubes and you know um, Vimeos and other things 
Um, you can look me up, I'm sure. Well, just to let you know, if, if they Google Lester Alfonso filmmaker, it goes right to you. Yeah. There, there, oh, there is none other. <laughs> there is none other but you. <laughs> oh, perfect. There's also, you can look up, the, there's a podcast. I have Soundproof, and I have the Ukebox, uh, which is the all-ukulele radio show. I basically make a playlist um, of ukulele covers on a theme every week. Um, so, yeah, there's that, too. Um, and yeah, I'm currently working on, uh, my PhD and, uh, I'm also working on a sculpture for, uh, video projections. So yeah, I'm working on a lot of different things. I'm also making another podcast. Um, amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But thank you so much for all of this, Rob. I really, really appreciate all the questions and you watching all the films and, uh, I really, really love it. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, no, trust me. The pleasure is, was indeed mine, um, and I absolutely encourage everybody listening to go do the same. Um, the film we're focusing on today is Circus Boy, and um, that is going to be on Apple TV streaming and uh, iTunes, so check that out definitely. Um, L.A., thank you so much for being on with us today. Um, you're a real joy, and your work is is really moving. I, I really encourage people to, to watch and absorb it. It's, um, it is, is very, very impactful. Um, I also want to thank Brody for his contribution um, and his work on the LA Blade. And obviously we have big things going on in the country and um, this is a voice we need to have um, checking all that out for us on our behalf. Um, tune in to us again next week. I have no idea what we're going to be talking about, but I can guarantee you that it is going to be fascinating, enthralling, and wonderful, and you do not want to miss it. So for uh, me and the rest of the team here at L, uh, Rated LA, LA, you've got me already doing it, <laughs> Rated <laughs> LGBT Radio, <laughs> that's us, um, uh, thank you for tuning in, and tell your friends to subscribe. You can find us on all the different uh, podcast platforms, um, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, you know, all of the above, or right on Blog Talk Radio. Just Google Rated LGBT Radio, and you'll find the variety of places where we are located. So again, we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 